Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 8. And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 22, the whole chapter. If you're just joining us this morning, I see a few new faces out there. Uh, the reason that we're in Genesis chapter 8 is because we're going through the whole book of Genesis. And we've come now to chapter 8. So let me read starting at the first verse. Holy Scripture says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, 
seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is God's word and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken clearly for our salvation and for our sanctification and for our usefulness in this world. And Father, I pray that you would take this particular word and enlighten us by the Holy Spirit and transform our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Before we walk through this passage, I want to take a step back and address a question that might be helpful to some of you. It's, it's possible that a few of you listening to these sermons from Genesis 6 to 9 might wonder, did, did this global flood actually happen? Or perhaps some of you have had or will have conversations with others, with children, with extended family members, with friends who are asking, did, did, this, did Noah's flood really happen? And so I want to address that question. Now, I'm only going to sketch an answer to give you some lines of thought to pursue for further study. study. So, it, so if you or someone you know experiences some doubt about the historicity of the flood, I want you to consider five things. Number one, the most foundational verse in the entire Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God is there and he created the universe out of nothing, and fashioned it into this world. If, if, if that happened, then it's really not difficult to believe anything else that Scripture tells us he did. It's, it's, not, it's not difficult for the God who created everything out of nothing to bring a devastating flood upon the whole earth and to preserve eight people through means of the ark. It's not difficult for God to appoint a big fish to swallow up Jonah and keep him there alive for three days and three nights. So, so that, that's, the, that's the first thing you've got to come to terms with. Do you believe that God is there and that he created this world? The, the second thing you've got to come to terms with is the trustworthiness of Scripture. You, you can't pick and choose what parts of the Bible you're going to take seriously. The Bible, the Bible says that it happened. Jesus believed that it happened, Matthew chapter 24, and we follow him. Jesus' authoritative spokesman, the Apostle Peter, believed that it happened, and he talked about it over and over again in 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter 2 and 2 Peter 3. The author of Hebrews believed that it happened, Hebrews chapter 11. So who are you going to stand with? 
Are you going to stand with the scoffers? Peter refers to the scoffers who deliberately overlook the fact of what God did through the flood? Or are you going to stand with the author of Hebrews? Are you going to stand with the apostle Peter who laid down his life for Christ? Are you going to stand with Jesus who laid down his life for you? That is what is at stake. Either you're going to believe that the Bible is God's word and that it always gets it right, or or you won't. Third line of thought. The flood narrative itself is very concrete in terms of detail. When you read it, it doesn't sound like some far-fetched legend disconnected from reality. There are waters above. There are subterranean waters below. And frankly, the amount of water presently on the earth is staggering. If, 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 you, were to, if you were to flatten out the entire surface of the earth, no mountain heights, no ocean depths, everything's flat, then seawater would cover the entire earth about 1.7 miles high. And frankly, it's actually very plausible that the pre-flood world that God originally made was actually much more even in its topography before the cataclysmic flood altered the landscape. Furthermore, the dimensions of the ark are ideal for floating and not for capsizing. The size of the ark is suitable for housing thousands and thousands of animals. The duration of the active flooding, 40 days, followed by 330 days of gradual evaporation and drainage and drying out, is realistic. And time markers are very carefully given. Uh, throughout the flood narrative. All, all, all of these things give the feel of concreteness and historical reality and accurate recounting. Number four, a fourth line of thought to pursue is the flood's explanatory power in terms of geology. An inundation of water upon the entire earth for 40 days which included not only incessant rainwaters from the sky above, but also the, the breaking forth of the subterranean waters would have massive implications for the planet. I mean, massive global death with animals being rapidly buried and fossilized. The topography of the earth would be reshaped. It is probable that the, the, the breaking forth of the waters from the great deep and, and, the, and, and all the other things that happened with the flood explains continental division and separation in terms of the world as we now know it. After the, origin, after the first 40 days, water continued to overwhelm the earth for another 184 days. It was only after 224 days that the mountaintops were seen and the water continued to go, go down. But all of that water would be impacting and shaping the world 
Um, and just think about the impact in terms of erosion and the cutting of canyons and the formation of lakes and rivers. It says in Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9, some people think this is a reference to creation, but actually there's really good reasons to think it's a reference to the flood. Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9 says, You covered it, the earth, with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Finally, here's the fifth line of thought you should, you, should, you should think about. You should consider the fact that there are flood stories among diverse people groups all over the world. Australia, South America, North American Indian tribes, Mesopotamia. Flood stories abound. Some of them bear significant resemblance to the flood narrative in the book of Genesis. Now the question is, how do you account for that? Think about it. Noah and his wife, Noah's three sons and their wives. This, this flood event would have left an indelible impression upon each and every one of them. And as the world began to repopulate and spread out after the flood, it stands to reason that Noah and his sons and his wife and their daughters-in-law, they, they, they would have explained and passed on the story of what happened in their year upon the ark and what came before and after. They would have, they would have told that to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and eventually... What would have happened, it always happens, is that these, these, these oral recountings would have gotten corrupted and distorted and filled with some error. But nevertheless, the, 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 the large number of flood stories from all over the world bear witness to the fact that something like that really did happen. And indeed, God tells us exactly how it went down. So if you or someone you know is struggling with the historicity of the flood, I encourage you to, to, to pursue those at least those five lines of thought in order to help bring conviction. Because the truth of the matter is, is that you're not, gonna, you're not going to derive, or at least you shouldn't, you, you, you should not derive spiritual nourishment from a passage that you believe is historically false. You've got to have conviction that this really happened. God really did something. God really spoke. He really intended something here. And then that ministers to us. And it's not just some kind of fairy tale that's supposed to give us a little bit of inspiration for our godless human existence. Okay, Genesis chapter 8. Uh, I got Genesis chapter 8 divided up into two sections. 
first, verses 1 through 19. God remembers Noah and those with him on the ark and brings them to dry land. Uh, the very first verse begins, but God remembered Noah. And, and that's, that stands out in stark contrast to chapter 7, verse 23. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. It says in Psalm 9, verses 5 and 6, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Isn't that sad, by the way? I mean, j j just, just think about the fact that we, we, we took a little time this morning to set our mind on three particular image bearers of God. Every, every human being is an image bearer of God. And God's image bearers were created for significance, to know God and to walk with Him and to participate in, in His kingdom. All, all, God's image bearers were, were created to be known and loved and remembered. And how tragic it is when God's image bearers so walk away from God, so corrupt themselves that they are blotted out. And their very memory is cut off from the face of the earth. That's, that's, a, that's a great sadness. But God in contrast to that blotting out, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. By the way, someone la last week asked me after the sermon, what about the sea creatures? Well, the sea creatures didn't need to go into the ark because they could survive in the waters. So, but, but God remembered Noah. That doesn't mean that he just intellectually called to mind that Noah was there, okay? If, 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 if something as simple as if someone remembers your birthday, the significance of, not, of that, of the fact that they remembered your birthday is not that they intellectually remembered in their own head that it was your birthday, but that they did something with that knowledge. They, they acted upon that and they sent you a card or they made a phone call, or they greeted you with a birthday blessing. God remembered Noah with a view towards taking action in order to care for Noah and the other ark passengers and ultimately to bring them to life on dry land again. And so God's remembering leads to action, right? God made a wind blow, still in verse 1. He closed up the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens, and it stopped raining. God set in motion a process, a very lengthy 
process that would lead to the evaporation and drainage of the waters and the drying out of the waters upon the earth. I want to say a little bit about the timeline. There's a lot of, there's a lot of time markers here, and I want, you to, I want it to be clear in your mind the, the, the order of events here. Go back to chapter 7. Uh, verse 11, and it says that in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So in chapter 8, when God closed the fountains of the deep and closed the windows of the heavens, that, w- that happened after 40 days. So think day 41, wind sent out upon the earth and the, 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 the sources of the flood were closed off and it stopped raining and now the very long process of decreasing waters begins. And uh, it says in verse 3 that the waters receded from the earth continually and at the end of 150 days the waters had abated. Next verse, in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month. That's five months, five 30-day months, 150 days, right? The first 40 days plus 110 days, a five-month period. And at the five-month marker, the waters were still all over the face of the earth, but they were low enough for the ark to come to rest on the mountains in Ararat. Ararat is a region uh, there, are, there, there are some proposals about the precise location of the ark landing, but Ararat itself is a, is a region that overlaps with present-day Turkey, Iran, Armenia. That, that's, that's, the, that's the general regional location of where the ark landed. From verses 4 to verse 5, another 74 days transpires. It says, and the waters continued to abate. They continued to decrease and gradually decline until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So that's, that's another 74 days after the 150 days. And then from, chap, from verse 5 all the way down to verse 13, 90 days transpires. It says in verse 13, in the 6th hundred and first year in the first month the first day of the month the waters were dried off from the earth and then finally after the 90 days from verse 5 to 13 there's another 56 days from verse 13 to 14 in the second month on the 27th of the month that's 56 days after verse 13 and that's about 371 days right a whole year plus 10 or 11 days from when the flood started. So that, that's where you get the grand total of 370, 371 uh, days, 53 weeks that this whole flood event transpired. So that's the, that's the, that's the big picture timeline. Th- th- think about how the Lord called Noah into a walk of faith. Right? Noah was already a man of faith. He was already walking with God. By faith, he had constructed the ark. That itself was a lesson in perseverance where Noah demonstrated his trust in the Lord. And 
Noah was on, on this ark for an entire year plus. I mean, this wasn't a ship that he was sailing. This was a big box he was floating in. He was not in control at all. He had to trust the Lord and he would have experienced at that five-month marker that the, the ark comes to rest on the mountains, but then there's still a lot of water out there, and it's a very slow process, another 220 days before they would exit the ark. N Noah had to go through this discovery process, as we read about in verses 6 through 12. He sent out the raven. The raven wasn't particularly helpful in discovering the state of things, but the dove, he, he sent out, you know, three dove missions, and finally, the second time, he came back with a plucked olive leaf, just indicating that, that, that life, vegetation, was beginning to sprout again on the earth. There, there was a renewal taking place, and then the third time the dove was sent out, he didn't return, thus indicating that now the the dove could live on this new earth. And then um, in verse 13, we're told that Noah removed the covering in the ark and he noticed that the, the ground, it was dry. The, the, specifically, the face, the face of the ground, at the end of verse 13, the face of the ground was dry, but the ground itself was still very wet. There was no water on it, but it was still very wet and needed another 56 days to dry out, which is where you get to in verse 14 that the earth finally had dried out, and that's when God gave the instruction to Noah that it was time for Noah and all of his fellow ark passengers to disembark from the ark. The instruction given to Noah in verse 16 and 17 is just... It's just the reverse of the instruction back in chapter 7 when he, when he told them, go into the ark and take with you all of the animals. Now it was time to exit the ark and take with him all of the animals. N notice one more thing. Noah waited for God's instruction. Noah had his eyes open. He, he was... He was able at some point to observe. He was able to learn lessons from the dove going and returning. He was able to see that the water had, 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 had dried up, and, but he was, he was waiting. He didn't exit the ark until the Lord gave him the instruction to do so. He was, he was again, demonstrating that he was walking with God. The, 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 the second part of chapter 8 is verses 20 to 22. So in verses 1 to 19, God remembers Noah and brings him and the other ark passengers to dry land. Now in verses 20 to 22, Noah remembers to worship the Lord and the Lord is pleased. I think, I think that this first recorded action after the flood is full of significance. And part of the significance is even found in the fact that we're told that Noah built an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh, right? If you, if you look back in chapter 8, God is referred to as God, Elohim, the sovereign 
God. And even if you go on into chapter 9, God is referred to as God, Elohim. But here, here, his covenant name is highlighted, thus adding significance to what he's doing. This is, this is the God who makes promises and keeps them. This is the God who enters into covenant relationship with his people and proves himself faithful. Noah built an altar to the Lord. But just think about the fact that this first recorded action after the flood is an act of worship. The priority is unmistakable. Uh, the, 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 the very thing that made Noah stand apart from the corrupt pre-flood generation is that he had a heart for the Lord. He, found, he had found favor in the eyes of the Lord, chapter 6, verse 8. He, he walked with God, chapter 6, verse 9. He did all that God commanded him, chapter 6, verse 22, and chapter 7, verse 5. The Lord had promised, I will establish my covenant with you, chapter 6, verse 18. The Lord had shut Noah in to the ark, chapter 7, verse 16. And God had remembered Noah, chapter 8, verse 1. The, the, the relationship between God and Noah is highlighted here. God did not forsake his faithful servant. God made provision for Noah. He preserved Noah. He remembered Noah. He brought Noah safely into the new world. And do you know what humanity's greatest sin is? Humanity's greatest sin you can read about it in Romans chapter 1, is, is to be on the receiving end of God's goodness and God's kindness and God's grace. And yet, to turn your back on God. To be on the receiving end of His goodness, but to refuse to honor Him as God, to refuse to thank Him for His manifold mercies and provisions to refuse to humbly acknowledge that the Lord, he is God. But Noah did not forget to honor God. Noah had experienced God's goodness, God's grace, God's friendship, God's life-giving commands, God's protection, God's thoughtful and ongoing care. And so he took time to build an altar and to offer up sacrificed animals. Remember those, clean, remember those clean animals? There were seven pairs of the clean animals. They were the ones that were suitable for sacrifice. And now Noah offers them up to the Lord in praise and thanksgiving and devotion to Yahweh, the covenant Lord who had so faithfully watched over him. How does the Lord respond to Noah's act of worship? We are told that the Lord is pleased. It, it was like a, a sweet-smelling aroma in the courts of heaven. And in the context of this worship, this, the, the, the sacrifice, in the context of that, the Lord decides to never again do two things. And you can see what they are. It says in the middle of verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man 
And then at the end of verse 21, he says, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This is, we're, we're, we're given an insight here into the very heart of God. This, this is not God speaking to Noah. He's going to speak out of this resolve in chapter 9 when he makes covenant with Noah. But right now we are brought into God's internal conversation, into God's own reasoning within his own heart. And with this pleasing sacrifice before him, he decides he will never again devastate the earth. He will never again devastate the ground in the way that he just did with the global flood. And he will never again strike down every living creature. And by the way, just to be very clear, this is not a decision to never again bring about a localized judgment or a localized catastrophe on a place. We see that over and over again in the scriptures. God brings judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God brings judgment on the Egyptians. God brings judgment on the Canaanites. Eventually, God brings judgment on Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. This is not a determination to never bring about localized devastating judgments. This is a resolve to never again, until the final judgment between Noah's flood and the final judgment, God will never bring about a global land devastating, every living thing dying judgment upon the earth. And notice what the reason is not. The, re the, the reason that God decides this is not because we are so much better than the pre-flood world. What does God say? I will never again curse or dishonor or devastate the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God decides to treat mankind far better than we deserve, no thanks to mankind, no thanks to what is going on inside the heart of man. The heart of man is corrupt. We were told in Genesis chapter 6 that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5. Now we see that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It is probably not an exaggeration to say that there has never been a time in human history when mankind, taken as a whole, didn't deserve to be wiped off the planet. And yet, here we are. And here are people like us gathered all over this world. Why? Because God, in grace and mercy, decided that he would wait patiently and forbear and treat us far better than we deserve until the final judgment. What will he, so, so that's what he's not going to do. 
He's not going to devastate the whole earth again. But what is he going to do? Verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. God will see to it that the agricultural rhythms and the seasonal rhythms and the daily rhythms continue uninterrupted until the end of this present world. As long as this present earth remains, God will providentially uphold and provide for and provide constancy to a wicked world. It says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus says that, that the Father makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. When the Apostle Paul was ministering to the pagans in Acts chapter 14, he told them that God had left them a witness even in their paganism and unbelief. Paul told them he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. How, how do you respond to the patience and the kindness of God? If this is God's gracious response to a mere man offering the blood of birds and animals on the altar... How much greater is his gracious response to the perfect man, Jesus Christ, when he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin? God's response to Noah's pleasing sacrifice was to basically to promise providential kindness to the entirety of mankind. Not saving grace. Providential kindness and preservation of physical life on earth. But God's gracious response to the sacrifice of his dear son is to promise eternal salvation for everyone who turns from sin and calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. As you think about what unfold, is unfolding before us in Genesis chapter 7 and 8, I want you to consider the fact that there are only two options for you in terms of the course of your life and your final destiny. Either God will remember your sins and blot you out, cut off the memory of you from the land of the li living, and send you into eternal torment. Or God will blot out your sins. He will remember your sins no more, and therefore he will look with favor and kindness and grace upon you. And that promise of sins blotted out, sins forgiven, sins remembered no more, gracious reconciliation with the Father, that promise is given to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Hebrews 10, 
we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We're told in Romans 5.10 that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It is a, it is a, it is a precious thing to live under God's promise to Noah and the physical preservation that we enjoy and don't deserve, but it is far better and indeed necessary if you would be Become a child of God and inherit eternal life. Far better to be under the covenant that God made through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with this question. How are you responding to God's goodness and kindness? We know how Noah responded. He built an altar. He bowed down. He offered up a sacrifice. How are you responding to God's goodness, to God's providential care, to God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ? Do you take it all for granted? Do you you think that you are worthy of his kindness? Do you think that you can just strut along like you deserve all this? Or do you understand that you are the undeserving recipient? of God's amazing kindness? Do you remember to say thank you? Do you remember to offer praise and thanksgiving to the Most High God? Do you remember to ascribe glory and honor and worth to His holy name? Brothers and sisters, we are not called to offer blood sacrifices the way that Abel did and Noah did. All of those blood sacrifices were pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ. But we are called to offer God-pleasing sacrifices. And so, I leave you with this from Hebrews chapter 13. Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let us pray. Father, I pray that we would declare and sing and celebrate and talk about your faithfulness, your mercies that never grow old, your steadfast love that never fails. Father, I pray that we would consider the stewardship that we have to follow in the footsteps of Noah and to declare your worth and praise to the world around us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.